Amen. He will soon return once and for all. I'm going to invite you to stand at this time for the reading of God's Word. And as we continue to study through the Gospel of Mark, we're in this morning, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And there the scriptures say, Again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man with, was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for a Savior who has come to give life. Thank you for a Savior who restores. I pray that as we study these verses, that this is more than a Bible study. You'd speak truth to our lives. You'd change us. We'd be people who don't just hear about your word, but we do what your word says. And thank you for the Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, just to uh, get us in the right context, we're sort of building to a crescendo, right? If you've got your Bible there, as we've been studying along, you may have noticed that the temperature is rising, right? We're coming to the crescendo with a symbol crash that... Jesus has been targeted by the Pharisees and the scribes for consistent criticism. This isn't happening every once in a while. This is happening every scene. So, for example, back here in Mark chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? A little bit later on in Mark chapter 2, verse 16, it says the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Flip the page to the next scene, chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? How about chapter 2, verse 24? The Pharisees were saying to them, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And then today we get to when he enters the synagogue, they're watching what he does so that they might accuse him, right? So we're just on the same page that this is the scene that Jesus has those who are watching and waiting, looking for a way to criticize him. They question him about who he thinks he is. They question him about what he says. They question about him him about what he does and then they question him about what he doesn't do and they reach a condition that I think is the worst case scenario my brothers and I we uh, exchange gifts at Christmas and they tend to be a little offbeat kind of designed to be humorous and several years ago I received for my uh, gift this book called the worst case scenario almanac history edition and it's full of interesting information for example it teaches you how to survive if your ship hits an iceberg 
or how, if you ever found yourself in this situation, how to escape from the Tower of London. It's interesting, we don't have time for it, but my personal favorite, I think, is how to survive a joust. Anybody ever been in a joust? Well, if not, then this book, let me tell you, will tell you how to make best of it. Now, now all of those situations um, are unlikely to come to pass in your life, but here this morning in Mark chapter 3, we have a situation that I'm going to call the worst case scenario, and it's not a matter of if you might find yourself wrestling through these things, it's a matter of when, and for many of us, it might very well be right now. A group of people find themselves in the worst case scenario. So I'm going to read the verse again, and maybe if not already, you are able to hear what I'm referring to. Jesus, the Savior, the Restorer, the Redeemer, is in the room, and this is what is said of them. He looked around at them with anger, grieved. Now, that's the qualification of righteous anger, by the way. An anger that is rooted in a grief. You righteously anger when you're angry because you know things should be better than this. Unrighteous anger is always rooted in something else. But Jesus righteously anger looks around, grieved, and here's the statement, at their hardness of heart. That's what we'll talk about this morning, diagnosing a hard heart. And we'll start with this point, number one, is simply this. Our worst case scenario is to be hard hearted. Now you think about this with me. We just went through a sequence of verses uh, underscoring the fact that this group of people, the scribes, the Pharisees, they're religious. They know their Bibles, y'all. They know their Bibles better than any of us do. They, they began, one of the precursors to becoming a scribe was to memorize the book of Psalms, memorize the books of the law. They, they know the Bible well. And as their criticisms have been coming with great consistency, Here's what Jesus has done so far. Forgiven sins, healed a paralytic, welcomed sinners and tax collectors into the fold of the kingdom. So what is it that he's done that made them so angry? Well, let's read another sequence of verses and maybe it'll help get us close to why they are so angry. For example, Mark chapter 1, verse 28, at once his, Jesus' fame, spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Now, you want to test for the condition of your heart, see your response when somebody else is praised. Maybe at work, somebody else gets encouragement and you're just sitting there grinding your teeth. They're saying that about him. He gave the credit to her. Now, here's a heart in sync with God is that Jesus is glorified. Amen. And that's what's happening here, and they're getting frustrated about it because if Jesus is glorified, what does that mean? They're not. They're not. And friends, this goes all the way back to the beginning, to the garden, Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent said to Adam and Eve, eat this fruit and you will be like God. What is the temptation? You get the credit that he gets. You get the glory that he gets. You get to be God instead of God, which is foolish, that's right, but that's the root of sin is that we could replace God as God. 
But I want us to know that this scenario is not just hypothetical. Look with me in Mark chapter 6, verse 52. Jesus is not talking about the Pharisees and the scribes in this instance. Look what he says. This is when he walks on the water. Mark chapter 6, verse 51. He got into the boat with them, that's the disciples, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, a reference back to his feeding of the 5,000. But look what it says. But their hearts were hardened. Or Mark chapter 8 and verse 17. Look what it says there. Jesus, aware of this, said of them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? So I just wanted to say that so that we don't conclude that when the Gospel of Mark talks about the hard-hearted, well, it's just those old scribes and Pharisees. No, it's his disciples. There's at least two ways we can conclude from the scripture that your heart can get hardened. Number one is just flat out jealousy. That's certainly true of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then second is an unwillingness to change or be corrected by the Lord when it's necessary. I'd point to the scribes and the Pharisees as one and the disciples as another. Well, here, let me put a couple of verses on the screen, beginning in Proverbs chapter 6, verse, I'm sorry, 4, verse 23. The scripture says, keep your heart, right, that's what we're talking about this morning. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. What is the book of wisdom telling us? It's telling us, if you're going to do anything, you need to guard, you need to protect your heart, because the condition of your heart affects everything about your life. Or how about this, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18 or verse, verse 23 we'll get here. Well, I think I meant 18, and that's probably most likely my mistake. So you can't look at it, but you can just listen to it, right? It says of those who don't follow Jesus, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God due to the ignorance that is in them because of their hardness of heart. Friends, when we're hardened in a heart, we're unresponsive to the things of God. It's almost as if God, in all of his kindness and glory and grace and compassion, could be present in the room, and if your heart is hardened, you're actually against him. And I want you to see it with this group here in Mark chapter 3. The Pharisees, at the end of this scene, they went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Just for our understanding this morning, you should probably know the Pharisees and the Herodians were enemies. They didn't get along. They're the opposites almost in every form of thinking. And yet the Pharisees were so angry towards Jesus that they went out and made allies with their enemies in order that Jesus would be destroyed, is what the scripture says. So the first, first point is this. The worst case scenario for our lives is to be hard-hearted. Here's the second point. Good news for us. Jesus is not hard-hearted. Isn't that good news? Uh, I think it's um, J.I. Packer who said, what you think about when you think about God is 
the most important things you think about. And when you think about God, I do not want you to be thinking that he's hard-hearted, mean-spirited, up there in the heavens, angry. As a matter of fact, did you know that there is no more joyful person in all the universe than God? If you've got it in your mind that God's some sort of cantankerous, miserable, he's not. And we see this of Jesus here. This is glorious good news. And it's important for us to know this because sometimes those who claim to represent God, particularly the legalists, portray him as being unhappy and as miserable as they are. But there's no more joyful person in all the universe than God. Ephesians chapter 2, you, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God being rich, listen to this, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you, even when you were dead, he made you alive together. Now, there's two things that I want to highlight about Jesus from this passage. If you've got your Bible open and we're back in Mark chapter 3, our translations might be a little bit different. But what's the first word you have in verse number 1? Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Hey, it's just us in here. Anybody able to shout it out? What you got? Oh, let's say it again. No pun intended. Let's say it again. We're on the same page? The first word is what? Let's, one, on the count of three. We're going to do this together. One, two, three. Again. Can I tell you a truth about Jesus? He can do a new work in an old place. Isn't that good news? He can do a new work in an old place. When it says again he entered the synagogue, that's referring us back to Mark chapter 1, verse 21. It says they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Anyone here, you don't necessarily have to say this out loud, but I'm not going to stop you if you want to. Anyone here this morning need Jesus to do a work in your life again? I'm not saying if you're born again that you need to be saved again. That's not what I'm saying. But I am asking you, do you need him to come back and breathe fresh spirit of life and joy and purpose as David said, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And David didn't say restore to me my salvation because you can't lose your salvation. You didn't earn it. You don't keep it. Jesus does those things. But you might need a fresh work again in your life. Anybody here, Jesus has done something in your marriage before, but you need something again? Has Jesus helped you sometime in the past with a stronghold sin and you need his help again? Or maybe he's answered your cries and your prayers for help before, and you need it again. If that's you, hey, I believe Jesus has done a great work in our church. I'd love for him to do it again. If that's you this morning, I want you to put your eyes on the page and see that word again. You know, his power does not have an expiration date. He can do a new work in an old heart. Your heart. Does it need something done today? Friends, God is not a yesterday God. He doesn't say, I was who I was. He says, I am who I am. If you're a follower of Jesus, your best days do not need to be those that have gone by. The best days for a follower of Jesus are always still to come. So he can do a new work in an old place. And then I think we see of him here. Second thing I want to say about Jesus is that he takes special interest 
and the overlooked and the left out. Let's talk about this for a moment. Jesus has been in and around. We've been studying through the Gospel of Mark together, right? So Jesus has been in and around Capernaum for a little while now, right? And again, again, this isn't his first time in the synagogue teaching and preaching and ministry. He's been at Peter's house, remember? He walked into Peter's house, and Peter's mother-in-law needed to be healed, and he healed. And then Peter's house became this sort of center where people were, uh, in fact, when they brought the paralytic, they couldn't even get in the house. Remember, they had to put a hole in the roof of the house to get in because so many people were drawing near to him. And then we get here. Here's my question. Why hasn't this man been healed yet? Why hasn't he been healed yet? And I want you to see what they've done to this man. This, this is probably clear to you when we read it. But I want to make it more clear. It says, he entered the synagogue and a man with a withered, was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus. Who's to they? The Pharisees and the scribes. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now, we won't go all back into this as we've done in previous weeks. Just know they had made, a, they literally made an idol out of the Sabbath. And that's kind of how their religion was. It was all about the outside. And you want to go over to, I believe it's Matthew 24, and you can read today what Jesus ultimately says to the Pharisees and the scribes. Woe to you. In fact, do you know this? They're in Capernaum. And you know what Jesus says in Capernaum? Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be better off on the day of judgment than Capernaum. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago, right? So, so they're watching to see whether he'll heal on the Sabbath. Now, here is the deal. They would say, the Pharisees now, we're tracking, would say it's okay to save somebody's life if their life's in jeopardy on the Sabbath. But if it's not a matter of life and death, then that person doesn't get help because there's not supposed to be any work on the Sabbath, right? And so they've taken God's law and they had made man-made rule after man-made rule about the Sabbath, right? So... You broke a bone, for example, you're not getting it set on the Sabbath. You're going to have to wait till the next day. That's, that's how the mentality has gone. So what have they done? They planted this guy, right? You can see it. They planted the guy, and he's got an issue, but it's not what? It's not a life and death issue. It's something significant. He's got a withered hand. But it's not going to cause his heart to stop beating by the end of the day. So, so, so here is, unfortunately, what happens again and again Again, in our fallen, sinful world, people with significant issues are used as pawns and treated as things instead of people. And these legalistic religious folks, they don't care about this guy. They're just using him. And then I think to myself, why, why hasn't he been healed already? And here's a thought that came to my mind. And I think it might be appropriate for your life is he assumed healing was for somebody else and not for him. I mean, he could maybe understand to a degree. Maybe he thought other people, a leper, for example, right? We've been there. Now, leprosy, now that's an issue. My withered hand may be not as significant as that, or paralysis. Again, the tone of this narrative suggests the Pharisees have planted him to see whether or not Jesus would heal him. Now think about what that communicates to this man. He's planted, he's used. And sin has unleashed in this world a tragic tendency for people 
to be belittled and used by other people. And what I love about Jesus is he doesn't let them get away with it. Amen? They want to set a trap, and Jesus walks right into it. They had made a man-made rule that on the Sabbath you could help somebody if it was a life and death issue. Now, can we zoom out and you see the whole, the whole scene here, right? What are they sitting in the worship service doing? What's the Bible say? They're plotting Jesus' death. That's what he means when he says, is it lawful? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or to save? And then I think most likely he looked right at those plotting, scheming Pharisees and said, to take life or to keep it. He knows. We already know he knows, right? Back in the paralytic scene. Jesus knowing what was going on in their heart. And this is the deal with the hard-heartedness. You can have an accurate diagnosis given to you about your heart, and it just still bounces off. Because it says, they went out and immediately held counsel. Well, Jesus aims to do good. And we also see, once again, that he knows what's in the heart. So here's an application for our lives, friends. Followers of Jesus should regularly, intentionally, purposely do good to others while we started our service the way that we started our service this morning. Here is a simple, practical, straightforward need in our area and among the nations, and we can do something about it. But praise God Almighty, Jesus is not hard-hearted. That brings us to our third point. And that's simply this. Let's, let's, let's spend a minute diagnosing a hard heart. Let's use a visual aid that's going to be understandable to everybody, right? That's the ground dried up ground and, and the Bible teaches about this in fact Mark 4 this is where we'll go in the weeks to come that Jesus tells the parable of the sower right and you uh, as you minister and serve and share the gospel it's like casting seed on the ground well what's going to happen if seed lands on that ground it's going to bounce off right you remember after sin entered the world at the fall what had once been a fruitful and productive garden became choked with weeds right I think that's a picture that we can all understand of what's happened to the human heart once sin entered. Dried up. Soil that had once been fruitful produces thorns instead of fruit. That's, that's the picture of a hard heart. And as Jesus was loving and serving and preaching and healing, their hearts are just getting more and more entrenched. So these scenes in Mark 2 and 3 help us identify and diagnose a hard heart. But fair warning... Those with a hard heart rarely perceive that they have a hard heart. I was reading um, a biography of Theodore Roosevelt over the weekend, and it was talking about he was at age 12, and he went out to hunt with a, uh, a group of uh, 12 and 13-year-olds, similar ages he was, and they got out there, and he said, I, I don't know how it started happening, but they were shooting, and birds were falling out of the sky, and they were seeing things, and they were shooting, and, they were, and I was left as the only one who didn't uh, have anything to show. And over the course of that week, he realized, this is why I'm sick. His eyesight was so bad, right? And he told his dad about it. His dad went and got a pair of glasses, and he said, nobody, nobody uh, got more birds the next time we went out because I could see, right? He said, I was ignorant of my ignorance. With a hard heart, right? How do you <laughs> how do you communicate to the heart that it's hard when the heart is hard? Well, we use the word of God. 
because the Word of God is more alive and active and powerful than the hardest of hearts. So let's just get a couple of uh, factors about a hard heart. Number one, someone with a hard heart is easily irritated. Easily irritated. Have you noticed the Pharisees are not joyful, they're joyless? And not only are they joyless, they don't want anybody else to have any joy either. What's this about, by the way? It's about power and control, isn't it? That's what it's really about at the end of the day. They want power and control, and more and more people are coming to Jesus, and so they feel their power and control slipping away. And so they're, they're easily irritated. Now, friends, the sooner we humble ourselves and acknowledge our own lack of control and authority, the better. We are not in control. God is on the throne. Amen? The Pharisees were not people of grace. They were legalistic. And their legalistic demands sap all the joy out of life. You know what I believe about God? I believe he wants you to really have a life abundantly. That's what Jesus said, right? So if your life's not full of joy, in fact, one of the fruits of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. You don't see any of that fruit in the Pharisees' lives, right? Why not? Because the soil of their heart is so hardened. So we don't want to recognize that there's any tendency in our own lives to want to control other people. If you have a desire to try to control your spouse, control your children in an ungodly, unhelpful way, control your sin. Well, that's true of the Pharisees. They're easily irritated, and next they're really quick to criticize. Well, this whole scene set up, and this says in verse 2, they watched Jesus... None of us bring a neutral heart to Jesus. They were watching Jesus to see whether he would heal them on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. You're a pretty miserable person when someone's helped and healed and they don't like it, isn't it? And then a hard heart is full of the Bible uses this word, and we're going to talk about it more in a moment, but malice, worst case scenario, malice is when you genuinely want something bad to happen to another person. We know they're full of malice because of what they do. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel, huddle up, get the, get the legal pads out with the people they'd never talked to otherwise, the Herodians against the house of are we ready for some Bible help? Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to put these verses on the screen. Let's start with this. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. Do not grieve. Have we heard that word before? And Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart. So do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now where were you sealed by the Holy Spirit of God for the day of redemption? In your heart. Back to Ephesians 1. If you're taking notes and want to go look at it. When you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed in them. Were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So do not grieve the Holy Spirit. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now let's read this next paragraph together. And get some Bible help. Let all. How much? All bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Not kind of holding it at arm's length. You got to get rid of all of that stuff. Along with all, what's the word there? Malice. Malice is the end game. Malice is the 
heart that's so hard to you, there's no sensitivity to the things of God to the point that you genuinely want bad things to happen to other people. And in the Pharisee's case, to Jesus himself. Okay, so let's do a little Bible study together. What's the last word? Malice. What's the first word in that sequence? Bitterness. And what this is, these are not just a collection of words just kind of thrown up on the board. Let's see what sticks. It is an intentional, purposeful, Holy Spirit-inspired sequence to what we might call the chain reaction of catastrophe, right? This is how families get blown up. This is how uh, churches get divided. This is how relationships get uh, harmed to the point that it's going to take something significant. And there is something significant, by the way. That's the next slide. So just hold on for a minute. But malice starts with bitterness. So we're going to go through these one by one and get some help for our heart from the Lord himself. Bitterness, what is bitterness? Bitterness is when you are hurt and you hold on to it. Now here's what's true. Everybody in the room, you've been hurt, right? You have been born into a world that is fallen and sinful and there's not anybody in this room that's not been hurt. Some of us in the room have been hurt to the core of our being. Some of us have been hurt by the people we thought we could trust. You've been through deep disappointment. You've been betrayed. Trust me. And you don't need me to say trust me. There are some real deep hurts in the world. And it matters what you do when you've been deeply hurt. Because if you don't know what to do when you've been deeply hurt, what begins to grow in the heart? Bitterness. But friends, what I need you to know from the scripture is bitterness doesn't stay what it is. It starts to grow. And it starts to get deeper and wider. And it's got tentacles and roots. And, and what begins to happen is in the heart, the bitterness starts to grow. And quickly, what's next on the screen there was, is, is wrath. Wrath is best understood for, for us to be a slow burn. In other words, when bitterness is maintained, it changes into, into wrath. And so the hurt that you've endured, what happens is it begins to dominate your thoughts and dominate your feelings. And, and you've been hurt and you begin to chew on it and it does something to the heart. The heart begins to do a slow burn. Sort of like when you turn the, um, I always have a problem when I try to do a cooking illustration. I immediately don't know the right word. But you turn the stovetop, I don't know if that's the right word, uh, on and it, you're going to boil some water and you get that thing burning. Happens. Slow burn. And then we keep going. So the bitterness has added to it wrath. And then the wrath becomes anger. So anger, this refers to a default setting. It means in your heart, instinct that's the right way of saying this, is, is anger all the time. It's sort of your constant mood. It's a constant state. It's just beneath the surface, but it's the condition of your heart. We say somebody lashed out. They didn't lash out. It's been right below the surface. They flew off the handle. No, they didn't. They've been holding the handle so tight that finally an opportunity came, and then they lashed out. It's the condition of your heart. When you've let the bitterness turn into wrath, and then we got anger. So far, that's why we got a comma there. So far, everything we've been talking about has 
it takes place on the inside. And that's about the change. Jesus says it best, out of the abundance of the heart, how's it go, church? The mouth speaks. What defiles a person is not what's outside of a person, it's what's inside of a person. So then we get to the next one, and that's clamor. Clamor is the volcano has been building, and then it erupts. Man, when you've been hurt, now, now this is important for you to understand as well, sometimes the volcano erupts, and we might even be able to say, oftentimes the volcano erupts and the clamor targets somebody who didn't do the bitter hurt to begin with. It's not that you're lashing out against the person that hurt you, you're just lashing out against another person because you've been hurt. That's what clamor is. And clamor is you've been stewing and it's been building and clamor is when you let it out and it is unleashed. The bitterness that was fed and chewed on and stewed over and turned into wrath and anger and you think, you think you're going to keep that down? No, sir. No, ma'am. It is coming out. And that brings us, once it starts coming out, then the next word there is slander. What is slander? That's when the verbal eruption is targeted on someone in particular or a group of people in particular. And you use your words to try to make other people feel in their hearts the way you do in your heart. You talk about it and you post about it and you let everyone in the surrounding vicinity know about it. We're just a few verses, by the way, down from let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only such as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. But man, when you've been hurt, when you've been wronged, that hurt grows and the slander comes. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, it's a glory to overlook an offense. Well, with, when we get to the slander level in the heart, you don't overlook the offense, you spotlight the offense. And then we get to the end game, malice. Malice is the end game of bitterness left unchecked. Malice is, again, when you genuinely want something bad to happen to another person, they went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Malice is what destroys families, relationships, churches, and lives. How did the Pharisees get here? Now, the Pharisees are a group of people who began when the Jewish way of life was threatened. Without going all into the history, they started with somewhat noble intentions. In the face of growing Greek and Roman influences, the Pharisees were a group of Jewish people who sought to maintain the Jewish traditions when everybody around them was adopting the practices of the Romans and the Greeks. And so they were committed, above all else, of maintaining their Jewish traditions. And that, friends, came out of a whole lot of hurt as Jerusalem had been conquered. You, if you read the Old Testament, you know that Jerusalem had been conquered by a variety of invaders over the centuries, beginning with the Babylonians. But now when we get to the ministry of Jesus, by all sorts of people, and the hurt and the disappointment turned them into something altogether destructive themselves. You've heard the saying, hurt people hurt people, right? Well, it takes a healed person to help others heal. So the heart is on the inside, right? 
Now, this is why I love the Bible. I love the scriptures and I love Jesus. Now, the heart's on the inside, but if we were to think about how it works in life, we might say that the heart is what we use to defend other people or seek to help other people or to praise the Lord, right? So if you were to sort of think about sort of what you have to do with a hard-hearted person, uh, like all of us are before we come to faith in Jesus, if you're to teach a hard-hearted person about their heart, you have to use physical illustration, right? So if it's with the heart that you help somebody, and if it's with the heart you defend somebody, and if it's with the heart you praise the Lord, do you, do you know what a fairly good object lesson about a heart would be? That's hardened. You know what it is, wouldn't you? It'd be a withered hand. Because something that is designed to help or to defend or to praise is no longer able to do those things. And that's why it's called Christian. Jesus says, come here. I'll restore you. You know what this whole scene is? This whole scene is right in front of them. Parenthetically, I tell you, it's right in front of you. It's right in front of them. The hardness of their heart, but they can't see it. And we diagnose the hard heart. Let's talk about how a hard heart is healed. healed. Just the very next verse. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, right? That's the opposite of hard-hearted. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, we're going to leave that passage on the screen, but I want you to have Mark 3 right in front of you, or this may come up as, as well. So, when you've got a bitter heart, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. You know what goes is, is kindness, isn't it? When the heart's hardened, kindness is gone, right? Have we seen the Pharisees do one kind thing for anybody? And this is a big issue. You know why it's a big issue? Here's what the Bible says. It's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. And so if, so if we're his ambassadors and yet we're unkind, friends, we've cut off. <laughs> we, we've short-circuited our whole ministry, our whole, our whole witness in the world. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, one of the ways that you can stand out in the generation in which we live is by being a person of kindness. Now, there is a big word there, and man, it is powerful. Forgiving one another. But I want you to know that Paul can't even get out of his mouth hardly that you forgive one another when he refers to what? As God in Christ forgave Hurt people hurt people. Forgiven people seek to forgive. Now, can I say just real quick? In no way, shape, or form are we suggesting that there hadn't been significant hurt done to people in the world. This isn't flippant. Oh, just forgive. No, no, no. This is, this is what's required. It says here, we'll get it. Do it quick. 
but it's so important. Let's use the man here in Mark 3. If his hand sort of illustrates, if his withered hand illustrates a hardened heart, how Jesus interacts with him about his hand teaches us, I believe, how Jesus can restore a heart. So it begins with this, verse 3. He said to the man with the withered hand, come here. So here's step one to heal the heart is you come to Jesus. Amen? What do I mean by that? Stop believing his help and his healing and his heart is towards somebody else. It's available to you too. And what I also mean when I say come to Jesus is you've got to stop looking elsewhere for healing. He is the one who's come for you and who loves you. Now there's all sorts of self-help books out there that talk about what we're talking about, and I am telling you that the only place you're ever really going to be healed is through the grace, compassion, mercy, and might of Jesus. So you come to him, and then you believe he really can heal. And then third, you're going to be restored by his powerful grace. Jesus could say anything he wanted to say. He knows all things, but he uses this particular phrase, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. Mark's going to say a little bit later on in his gospel, when they nail him to the cross, he, he stretches out his hand. Okay? These aren't coincidental tidbits, little fun facts. This is God doing everything he can do to paint a picture for you as to how you really can be healed. It's at the cross. Forgiving one another just as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. Where did God initiate forgiveness with us? He displayed it was at the cross. Friends, Jesus is a restorer. If your heart is withered, if it is full of bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice, I want you to know that he can restore. Maybe he's done it before. Guess what? Good news. He can do it again. His arm is not too short <laughs> that he cannot save. In conclusion, the way I've, we've said it before as a church family, the way I say it again, what God has done for us in Christ Jesus must reign in our hearts more than anything else anybody else has done to us. Say it again, and we'll conclude. We often say it this way. What God has done for us in Christ Jesus must reign in our hearts instead of anything someone else has done to us. Either the hurt or the healing is going to reign in your heart. It's another way of saying you're either going to be hard-hearted or tender-hearted. In a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to pray. We get to do one more thing together as a church family today, and that's uh, celebrate salvation with a public baptism. So we're going to do that here in just a moment. But I'm going to invite you to stand right now, and we're going to pray. And the invitation is going to be pretty straightforward, pretty simple. With your head bowed with me, here's the invitation. It's a simple question. Does your heart need to be restored? Does your heart need to be restored? If so, again, I want you to know that there is no less grace, power, and mercy available to you right here, right now than there was 
and that synagogue that Jesus was standing in in Mark chapter 3. As we sing this song, maybe your desire to approach here at the front, pray to the Lord, seek his face. If you've got a burden or concern and you really want to sit down and talk with somebody, be my joy. I, I try to make myself easy to get a hold of. So if you want to call or we sit down and talk this week about some of these things we've talked about, that be my joy. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that um, Jesus is a restorer. I thank you that Jesus is not hard-hearted. His heart is for the overlooked. And he's mighty to save. Father, thank you that you can do a work in our heart at the deepest level. We give you glory and we pray in Jesus' name.